All right, well, I think people are going to trickle on in and grab their seats, but we're going to get started this morning with our adult Bible Sunday school class, and we are going through systematic theology as a church body, and we are currently in theology proper. So um, we're going to pray, and then we'll go ahead and dive in. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, just for your grace in our lives. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church body. And Lord, we get the opportunity to look into your word to see you more clearly. And I pray for your help this morning, that we would have eyes to see, that we would have tilled hearts ready to receive your word, that it would be transformative in our lives, and that you would, uh, by your spirit, give us insight. Lord, we love you, and we pray all this in faith, and in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through um, theology proper, and wanted to just review, since we took a week off for Easter Sunday, uh, where we've been so far. So in theology proper, we've learned that this is the study of the doctrine of God the Father. And in part one, um, Scott Huffman walked us through the existence of God, the knowability of God, and the incomprehensibility of God. So talking about what scripture says about the existence, that God exists and he has spoken, that he is knowable. He's given us an ability to understand who he is, but in the same sense, he's also infinite, and we are finite. So there's incomprehensibility in the sense that we can't know him fully, but we can know him truly. Part two, uh, Carrie covered for us uh, the nature of God and the attributes of God to understand more clearly who he is as he's revealed himself in his word, both by his names and his acts. So today we're going to dive into the Trinity. So we're going to continue talking about who God is And we're going to do it in a flat 45 minutes, right? So, uh, some questions for us to consider today um, in the short time that we have is, uh, where does the term Trinity come from? How can God be three persons yet one God? Does the doctrine of the Trinity really matter? So, we're even just really going to scratch the surface of all of these questions, but hopefully um, it'll encourage you to dig deeper, to understand Uh, what God has revealed about himself. So before we dive in, um, as I had prayed earlier, um, if I say something in error, um, it's because this is a very technical language, and I've thought through it and prayed through it a lot and asking for the Lord's help, but there is very technical language when we're talking about the character of God and who he is. Uh, So we want to be specific. We're also limited by language because uh, we are, are finite and God is infinite. He is Um, trying to let us understand who he is with bound, time-bound language, right? And so uh, we're limited by how we can describe the things that we see God revealing himself by. But it's very important. Um, As we'll see, there are lots of heresies that have come up because people are trying to substitute words in or remove certain aspects of the principles that we see in Scripture about the Trinity. And it's, it's precious language. It's language that saints have laid down their lives for. Uh, to understand who God is rightly. So uh, we're going to take time to look at this this morning. First, I wanted to cover a little bit of the history, because many of you and probably others have told you, um, if you're talking about the Trinity, um, well, it's not in the Bible, so why would I believe it? I don't see the word Trinity found anywhere. I can't do a, a word study and just look up Trinity and see all the verses where it's mentioned. So where does this word Trinity come from? Um, It's not found in Scripture, specifically the Word itself, but it is a doctrine that's found all throughout Scripture. 
Um, the actual original um, creator of the word, um, in a sense, um, the etymology, would be Tertullian. He was in the third century, and he came up with the Latin word Trinitas, uh, which we would translate to be Trinity, um, this tri-unity that he was seeing and defending based on Scripture. So for us, I thought it'd be good to go through and look at some definitions. So uh, both our doctrinal statement here at Redemption Hill Church um, and then we're going to look at some others that kind of give you the flavor of what we're specifically talking about. So this is the full um, doctrinal statement about um, God the Father um, here from our website. So it says, we believe in one true God, the creator and sustainer of all things, eternally existing in three distinct yet fully divine persons. In the unity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one in essence, equal in power and glory, execute distinct yet harmonious functions, and are therefore equally deserving of worship and obedience. Grudem defines the Trinity this way, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. MacArthur and Mayhew define the Trinity this way. God is absolutely and eternally one essence, subsisting in three distinct and ordered persons without division and without replication of essence. So here, even in this definition, you'll see this aspect of we're saying something that is true, that we observe, but it's kind of called negative theology. You make a negative statement to say this is a boundary line. We don't cross this. We say without division or without replication. And again, the uh, Athanasius Creed, uh, which was in, I believe, the 5th century, uh, that was written down in defense of the Trinity. It says we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So in all of these definitions, if you synthesize it down, the best way to teach on the Trinity is to understand that there are three boundary lines, not guidelines, but boundary lines that we must not cross when discussing the Trinity. And by crossing, we mean forsaking. These are going to be observations we're going to see as we look passage after passage in Scripture. So when uh, I was learning about the Trinity, I came up with a little acronym, PU, P-U-E, plurality, unity, and equality. So if you remember one thing about the Trinity, that's going to be a good thing for you to retain from this class, is plurality, unity, and equality. So by plurality, what we mean is that God is three persons. And by unity, we mean that there is one God. And equality, we mean that each person is fully God. And we're going to look at several passages today, but for the sake of time, a lot of them are going to be found in the New Testament. So I just wanted to briefly mention that the Old Testament doesn't exclude the doctrine of the Trinity. It's implicit in the Old Testament. There's lots in regards to just the language, but even the verses themselves. In Genesis, it talks about, let us make man in our image. Um, there's lots in Isaiah, and the name of God, Elohim, is actually plural. Um, so there's actually a lot in the Old Testament that points to the Trinity. But in regards to progressive um, revelation, the timing of how God's unfolded who he is for us to see, the New Testament makes it much more explicit as we see um, all the persons of the Godhead in the act of redemption acting. 
And so we see in the New Testament, it's much more explicitly um, laid out for us to see. So it would, we would say it's contained in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. So first we're going to look at plurality. Let's look at some verses on the plurality of the Trinity we see in Scripture. So we'd want to see all these persons identified. So in John 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So even in that verse, we see that the Word is identified later in that chapter as Jesus Christ. And we see that he says, He, being the Word, was in the beginning with God. So when we're looking at plurality, there's a distinction that's made in regards to the persons. John 14, 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So here again we see a distinction between the Father and the Spirit, saying that the Father is going to send the Spirit. So there seems to be a distinction in the persons. In John 16, 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, then the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So one of the things that was helpful for me in kind of digging through this to understand the difference between the term essence and the term being, um, sorry, the difference between the term essence and the term person uh, for person, what we're not saying is that there's independent individuals and independent beings. What we're saying is that a person is someone who identifies themselves as I, right? I'm a person, so I say I, and I say you. And so we see this personhood distinction when he says, I will send him, right? There's a the distinction in regards to the plurality and the persons that we see in Scripture of the Godhead. Again, this is the observation. We're seeing in Scripture how Jesus, the Son of God, was talking about the Holy Spirit. And we need to write this down, as we've been talking about in some of my Bible studies. Dan Rudman says, just put all the pieces on the table, right? We just want to lay everything out and then see from there what God says is true. We don't want to just jump to a conclusion looking at some of the passages. But this is one of those pieces of this puzzle in regards to plurality. And then we see it in Matthew 28, 19, which I would say is probably uh, one of the key verses in regards to the Trinity. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see three distinct persons laid out in Matthew 28, 19, and we'll see it again. That verse will come up in regards to unity and equality. So we've seen plurality in both the Father the Son, and the Spirit, let's look at some passages that point to unity, the unity of Scripture about the doctrine of the Trinity. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the great Shema. It would have uh, been known by all Israelites. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mark 12, Jesus actually repeats the great Shema. When asked what is the most important or the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, this is the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus was pointing back to the Old Testament, and he goes on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he includes the great Shema in that response 
saying that I'm not denying that God is one. I'm upholding that God is one. Jesus being a Jew and wanting to teach the Jewish people, they would have said, amen, yes, that's true. And when they looked at their history, they would have said, every time we try to go towards uh, polytheism, that there's more than one God and worshiping pagan idols, that was always the downfall. Um, that was always bringing about consequences and sending them out of the land and, and not upholding God's law, as we've seen in Exodus. So also in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, reads, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So you see, when he, Paul's actually writing this to the church at Corinth, and he takes this tempo, this, this layering of the great Shema, and he reemphasizes it and states it that Jesus is Lord. He's presenting that in regards to unity, and he's not seeing these statements in contrast. He's putting them right next to each other, saying these statements are true, and we're upholding that God is one. Also, back in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 and 6 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Scripture is very clear around that there is one God, one essence, one being, one substance. Those are the words that we use in regards to saying that God is one. John 10, 30, Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. And in this passage, what's interesting is the term, the word one here is actually gender neutral. It's not saying that, um, that one is a he word, but it's actually a neutral word, which refers to essence. He's not saying we're one person. He's saying we're one being, that God is one. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James was even upholding and saying that you do well, basically affirming the statement that God is one. One Again, we're looking specifically at the unity of Scripture, and we're bringing up Matthew 28, 19 again as well. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. So we saw plurality in the, the three persons listed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but name is singular. It's singular because it's pointing out that there is unity, that there is one God, one being. So in, in that passage, we see unity as well. Lastly, we want to look at equality. How do we see equality of the triune God in Scripture? So basically what I did is I grabbed some verses that pull out where we see the Father is identified as God. Father the person, God the being. And then we also see that um, Jesus himself is identified as God and that the Spirit is identified as God. So John 6, 27 says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So the Father here is identified as God. 
And then in John chapter 20, verse 28, um, a, a very familiar passage where Thomas says, unless I see the scars in his hands and the wound in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus appears and um, Jesus says, put your finger here. Put your hand in my side. And the declaration that Thomas says is Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And being a good Jew, for him to say that, that, that Jesus was God was a, a big statement. And not only did Thomas affirm and declare this, but Jesus affirmed it. He said, um, uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. He's saying your statement is true. It's accurate that Jesus is God. And um, John obviously affirms it as well as, as a Jewish man because he's writing this letter and wants us to believe. So um, again, Paul's writing in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, speaking of Jesus. And lastly, uh, we need to point out with equality is that where does scripture uh, point us to see that the Holy Spirit is identified as God? In Acts chapter 5, um, verses 3 and 4, it says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So earlier he says, in your heart you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And he says, you've lied not to man, but to God. So he's setting up this parallel and stating um, that the Holy Spirit is God. And then again, we come back to our key verse, Matthew 28, 19, which promotes equality as well. And you'll, you'll see it here if you listen to it this time. In regards to lists that you identify, there's equality implied. So um, if I said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and something else, if I replaced the Holy Spirit there, you would say that they're all on the same level. You would, if I said, the Father, the Son, and his pulpit, well, that seems out of place. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be appropriate to, to put that in the same list as something else. So when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the distinct persons, but all equal, the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. He's putting them together. And that's why it's a really helpful verse when thinking of the Trinity and explaining the Trinity as well. So ran through a lot of verses. There's a lot more verses we could look at. But I wanted to also give you some visual aids, but there's not any good ones. So that's the short answer on that. There is something historically called the shield of the Trinity or the shield of faith. Um, and again, I would say this is a good teaching tool. Um, I wouldn't say it's a great analogy. Um, when we try to take God who is uncreated and describe him with created things, it's going to always fall short. So analogies are, are going to fail us. But this, this picture really does help in regards to upholding plurality, unity, and equality. We see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, um, distinct persons. And it's important for us to not say that the Father is the Son. That's why on the outside of uh, this shield of the Trinity, you say, is not, is not, is not. So the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Son is not the Spirit, right? They're distinct persons. But there's this access to the middle, um, this little bridge, um, it, just describing for those that are maybe listening in audio, 
to the center point that says the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, right? That's upholding all aspects in regards to plurality, unity, and equality. So the Trinity is not uh, man's invention. And I can tell you that because man would have invented something a little easier to explain. Um, it's important for us to understand that the Trinity is not of man's invention. Um, it's strictly what we see God revealing about himself through his word. And we want to uphold what his word says preeminently. So uh, the Trinity, in regards to these aspects we've talked about, we've talked about bringing these three principles or characteristics together of plurality, unity, and equality. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what happens if we lose one of the pieces of the puzzle that Scripture presents. So if we took out equality, if, if we said, you know what, I'm not convinced of equality, um, let's, let's delete that piece out, what's left with plurality and unity is called Arianism. And this is a heresy um, from the early church that basically said, um, it's also described as subordinationism, uh, they would read through Scripture and say, no, um, Jesus uh, had a starting point and he was created and he is less than God or subordinate or subservient to the Father. And what happens there is the gospel unravels. Um, you have no salvation, you have no hope if Jesus is strictly a created being. So um, it's really important that we uphold equality. And what happens here is that there's really a, an intense misunderstanding of the word um, submission. And that's one of the, really the applications in regards to the Trinity. When you look at the Trinity, you see that Jesus submitted to the Father. Submission, an important word to understand there, is that it doesn't delete equality. What submission does, even you can see in your marriages, what it does is it provides order. Submission provides order. And there are distinct persons, and that must be upheld, that there is equality, even when we see um, different aspects of scripture. One of them, um, if you're interested in going further, would be the eternal begottenness of the Son. Um, in the Old Testament, it says that the Son is begotten, and in John 3.16, uh, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. What does that mean? Well, it's not meaning that Jesus was created. We would say God the Father is not made or created and not begotten, because that's not what scripture says. But we would say of the Son that he is not created, not made, but begotten. That we would say that God the Son is begotten. And um, what we need to understand about that is that it's not speaking of anything other than order. Order is a really key word in understanding the relationship between the distinct persons of the Godhead. So Arianism is a big no-no. Um, common day would be uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They think that Jesus is less than God. Uh, Mormons think that Jesus elevated himself to become a God, and they can kind of follow that same track. Um, again, if, if God is ever created, then he is not God. It's impossible. So Arianism is a big no-no, so we must put equality back in. But what about unity? What about losing the aspect of unity. Well, the result of that would be what's called tritheism or polytheism, which is more than one God. And the passages in Scripture in the Old Testament and the New all reiterate that God is one. God is one, and we can't divide it up. And what happens here is, again, if you have 
three gods, either they're all one-third God, which means that by themselves they're not actually all-powerful. They only have subgroups of either attributes or power or glory. But together then they're one. So they're still subservient to God. So that doesn't work. So what if they're all fully God? Well, then together, if you still put them together, there's something greater or more powerful when they have their you know, Captain Planet moment. Together we are Captain Planet. We all become one. There's something greater. So again, then they're not God. So um, it falls whichever way you go to it. And we must make sure to not add on in saying that, yes, they're all one, but you know, Jesus had these attributes and the Holy Spirit had these attributes and the Father had these. There's, they're all one God, right? God is one being in three persons. So unity must be present. We can't delete out unity. But what about plurality? What happens if we uh, remove plurality from these principles of the doctrine of the Trinity? The result would be called modalism. Modalism is a big no-no as well. Um, So modalism basically says that there is one God and they want to uphold that but they don't really buy into the distinct persons, and they say that one being um, took different modes or manifested himself in different modes, um, which means that God the Father was the first, and then he came to earth and manifested himself as the Son, um, and then after Jesus left, that he then manifested himself um, as the Spirit. And what happens here is you have to delete out passages of Scripture where that just doesn't fit. Um, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 is a big no-no to modalism. This is the scene where Jesus is uh, baptized. And it's in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16. And it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased and there are many others where we see god acting in unity at at certain events um Uh, inseparable operation. Sorry, I almost lost it. That's one of those uh, doctrinal terms. Inseparable operation is where we see um, God working together in creation, in redemption, and we see that God's working in his distinct persons all in the event. So um, with the baptism, we see all three. With the incarnation of Christ, God the Father gives the Son who takes on um, mankind's flesh through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, is what the angel said to Mary. So again, we see all uh, three persons of the Godhead acting in unity. Yet there's also this aspect of divine appropriation, is the term. That it's um, appropriating certain events. We wouldn't say that God the Father died on the cross. That's not correct. Uh, That's incorrect. That's not what scripture says. And so we don't want to say what scripture doesn't say. So again, um, if we lose plurality of these distinct persons that identify themselves as I or he, um, we, we lose sight of, of many of the important passages of scripture and have to, have to just delete out 
way too much. Uh, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would pray to the Father if he is the Father in the Son's body. It just doesn't make sense for modalism. It doesn't uphold what Scripture teaches. So we have to have plurality as well. So what happens when we have all three of these pieces and we actually um, emphasize all that Scripture says about God? What happens is we actually get the Trinity. So it's important that we remember plurality, that we uphold unity and equality when talking about our heavenly um, God, the divine God who's created all things. So in summary, I wanted to kind of give you some no's and yeses. Um, the first three are going to be the no's. As we've seen, uh, there's lots of aspects of the Trinity, lots of ways, I guess we say, to fall off the horse. Um, and the, one of them is that the three persons are not each part of God, but are each fully God and equally God. We, we must not say that three persons are, are each part of God because what happens is tritheism. It breaks it out. Number two says the Trinity is not belief in three gods. Sorry, I got that wrong. Two is tritheism. The Trinity is not belief in three gods. Number one was Arianism. Um, if it's um, subservient to God, if Jesus was not fully God and equally God. But two is saying that the Trinity is not a belief in three gods, which would be tritheism. And number three um, on our list of summary statements is that God is not one person who took three consecutive roles. So again, terminology-wise, and it's probably going to sound confusing, we have to make sure that we say that God is one being in three persons. So being and person are different. Number four says that God, or said this one God exists as three persons. That's a short, quick summary statement. And then lastly, the Trinity is not a contradiction because God is not three in the same way that he is in one. And that was a big takeaway, is, is really just understanding that the Trinity does not break the law of contradiction. It's not saying that Jesus is, or that, that God is one being and three beings. You can't have both, right? You have to say it in, a, in we have to really have a distinction between um, essence and between person, or between being and person. And that's why we say that God is one in essence and three in person. It's not that we have to have this faith that breaks our reasoning to say that God is this. Um, God does work supernaturally. And there's going to be things that are not things we can do or replicate or understand. But the Trinity is not a contradiction. We have to understand that God is one in essence and three in person. So questions that we asked at the beginning um, in review. Where does the term Trinity come from? We talked a little bit about the history of it. But it's not something that's orchestrated, right? It's not something that man put together, but it's observed from Scripture, which we went through in Bibliology, understanding this is God's written and inspired word that he's revealed to us about himself without error. So we have to take all of it and say, this is what we see God saying about himself. But how can God be three persons, yet one God? Well, we talked about the distinction between essence and person, between being and person, and really, those are probably the simpler two words to retain, is understanding the distinction between being and person. And one <clears throat> little helpful way is, is understanding that being talks about the what, the what, 
and person talks about the who. So understanding that God is one what and three who's um, is another way that you could break it down to understand and grasp or even to, to explain it to others, to your children or to coworkers that have questions and want to understand. So does the doctrine of the Trinity really matter? Um, look at John 17. John 17, verse 3. And this is probably the short answer. <clears throat> There's lots of really practical answers to understanding um, more about the Trinity and how it applies to our per- personal lives, but I'd rather just go for the jugular first. Um, <clears throat> the biggest deal here is that this is who God is. It's who he is. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus elevates this idea of knowing who God is and says how important it is. Jesus is praying and says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternity hangs in the balance. And it's not just a timetable. Eternal life is not talking about becoming, you know, like Wolverine. You just become immortal and you can live forever. Eternal life is talking about being with God. It's about knowing him in a personal, real way. It's about having a relationship with him forever. And I think it's important to understand that if you set aside the Trinity and say, oh, that's for the headies, uh, the theologians, the people big on doctrine to understand And it's just not something I'm interested in. You're setting aside who God's revealed himself to be for you personally. And if you do that, you're kind of just setting God aside. And I think it's really important for us to take that seriously. And there's huge amount of benefits. So that's the the direct challenge. But as soon as you open that door to see, you are going to find delight in understanding that the world tries to answer the ideas of unity and diversity. And they keep messing it up. But God has revealed himself as the perfect tri-unity. And we oftentimes get confused and conflate these ideas that the world's presenting to us to say, well, this is the best way to support unity. And really what they're saying is conformity. And we get confused. But if we sit down, it applies to marriage. We talked a little bit about submission and what that looks like. It's important to look at Jesus and say, well, he submitted to the Father too. What does that look like? in the picture of marriage and what I'm called to do and what scripture says to do um, in submission for, for leadership as well in regards to leading a church and seeing Christ as the head of the church. There's tons of application in regards to how we live from uh, that flow out of who God is, right? If he is the creator, he has made everything and he's made us even in his image, we should look to see who God is and live according to what he's revealed to be true. So um, that's, that's a little bit um, in regards to application, and I encourage you to dive deeper to understand, because there's, there's tons more questions, uh, tons more questions. In regards to those, we'd love to have some of those questions. We're planning to have a Q&A once we're through um, our study on theology proper. Um, actually, uh, next week, um, JD's going to be um, going through part four of theology proper on the doctrine of God and talking about God at work in creation, and God's providence. So if you have questions from today's lesson, 
Um, I'd love for you guys to email those into us because some of those questions are going to overlap. Some of them are going to apply to other lessons and some will be future lessons. So we want to anticipate those. If you could email those to us at info at rhlawrence.org, we'd love to get those and organize those so we can actually go through those as a group and have um, some, some in-house discussion, some, some time to answer some of those and, and look at the practical aspects personally as well. So um, with that, um, you're dismissed.